So we're in our series called The Break, and this is our Advent series, and the big question we're asking is, can God actually break into the world? Can the creator become, become part of his creation? Can the storyteller write himself into his own story? That is the big questions we are asking. And Christmas is when humanity reminds itself that the answer is yes. God can come in. He has broken in. He has ripped open the heavens and come in. And that is your great hope. In fact, that is your only hope. And that is humanity's only hope. Christ alone, God with us. And that's what we're talking about today, God with us. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at three things. We're going to look at God with us. We're going to look at God with us. And then we're going to look at God with us. See what I did there? Did you see what I did there? You guys have to laugh at my jokes. I will sit here in silence until you do. All right, so we're going to read Matthew. We're going to read Chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Now, last week, we looked at 18 through 22, and we're going to really focus in on 22 through 25 right now, but I'm going to read the whole thing to give you the context. So here's the deal. Here's what God says. Uh, God with us, Matthew 1. Now, the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, as did the angel of the Lord command, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded, he took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son and called his name Jesus. Now, all right. We all want proof that God really has broken into the world, and we really want proof that God has really died on the cross for our sins, and we want proof that God has risen from the dead to break death apart for us, and we want proof that God is one day going to return and make all things right. And here's what happens. Watch this. So John chapter 5, the religious leaders are trying to kill Jesus because he's made himself equal to God the Father, and Jesus says, okay, fine. You don't believe me? You don't believe I am who I'm saying I am? Fine. Don't listen to my words. He says, look at what other people are saying about me. But then he says, well, there's something greater than that. Look at my miracles. Look at the signs that I'm doing. Let those be your proof. But then he says, but you know what? There's one thing that is greater than all other things as proof. That I am God, come into the world, die on the cross for your sins, raise from the dead so that you might break through death, and then I will one day return to make all things right. Here's the proof, he says. The scriptures. He's talking specifically about the Old Testament. 
And what he's saying is absolutely every single word written in the Old Testament is pointing forward towards him. Now, a Hebrew would be absolutely, his mind would be blown at what he just said, and that's why they're trying to kill him. Because he's just saying he's basically the glory that fills in all the gaps. Everything that the Old Testament was saying was pointing to him. This word, okay, so the word is fulfillment here. So everything's pointed to him, fulfilled in him. So the root word here for fulfill in Hebrew basically just means to fill, so to fill something up. So here's how you got to think about this. There's all these promises in the Old Testament, and you could think of each promise like a jar. And those promises, those jars are meant to be filled with something. And they're all pointing forward to Christ. So the jar is just the structure. It's the promise. But it's not glorious enough yet. It has to be filled with something that's glorious enough to do everything we long to be done. And that is God with us. Emmanuel, God with us. Each... Don't miss what Christmas is about. Each promise in the Old Testament is fulfilled at Christmas, or almost filled at Christmas. The Old Testament sets up your heart to long for Christmas. So here's how you should think about the Old Testament. Let me just summarize. I'm going to summarize the Old Testament in one sentence. God's people are lost and without him, and they cry out for him. Answer, Christmas. God with us. All the promises come to be fulfilled in Christ. Christmas is your answer, God's answer to you for your cry for help. Whatever that might be, Christmas is that answer. Now, don't make the same mistake that so many people make and say, ah, the Old Testament. That's where God was angry. That's where everything was just kind of like, oh, what's going on? We don't really understand this. That's where everything was irrelevant. Listen, Jesus is saying that the Old Testament is the greatest proof that we have that he actually is God come in the flesh to die for us, rise for us, and come back one day to make all things right. And a lot of times what you see people do is dismiss the Old Testament. They don't know what to do with it, and so they push it out. And if you're doing that, or if someone's doing that, what they're doing is they're taking out the greatest proof that Jesus actually is God among us. Come in the flesh. The answer to our cries. He's saying, look, if you doubt, Jesus is saying, he's speaking to us now even in the scriptures. If you're doubting me, go to the Old Testament. Search what it says, because here's what happens. There's all these promises that we see in the Old Testament, all waiting to be fulfilled and then are fulfilled in Christ. The greatest proof that Jesus is God with us is the Old Testament. Okay, so there we go. Now we're going to look at Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. That's his name. He's given the name Emmanuel. Now, don't, don't you dare ever read the Bible, and not see how it is claiming that Jesus is God. A lot of people will say, 
Jesus would never intend for us to read the Bible and not think. It, Jesus would never intend for us to read the Bible and want us, he wouldn't want us to think he's claiming to be God. People say, the, the, the disciples are saying that, but Jesus wouldn't have wanted us to think that. But look at this, John chapter 5, we just saw it. So they're ready to kill him because he's just made himself equal to God, and he doesn't say, guys, you're misunderstanding me. No, he says, you want proof? Look, look at my miracles. But ultimately, look at the scriptures. He's not denying it. Or think about it this way. So we have these great moral teachers, Buddha or Gandhi, and if someone started worshiping them, they would say, stop, what are you doing? But when people start worshiping Jesus, he lets them do it. He doesn't stop them. In fact, he lets it go on as if to say, you're, you're finally doing the thing that you are meant to do. You're finally doing the thing that is the greatest thing for you to do for yourself. This is the best thing that you could be doing. He doesn't stop people. He lets it go on. If he didn't think he was God, he would stop people from worshiping him, but he doesn't. Also, we love to talk about how great of a guy that Jesus is. Now, let me ask you this question. If he is so great, but he is not God, why would he claim to be God? That doesn't sound like a very moral thing to do. The honest conclusion that we've got to make about him is that either he is crazy, he's God, or he's some type of megalomaniac. He's either God or he's mega, a, a, an absolute megalomaniac. You must either worship him or kill him off in your life. You must call him crazy if he is not God. And if you don't do one or the other, then you're a little bit crazy. We must either kill him off in our life or worship him. And if we don't do either one, we're a bit crazy. We don't understand what we're doing. Okay, now let me, let me say this. There is a period in people's lives where they're coming to discover Christ. Or they're open to him. Now here's what that period looks like. I could make the greatest intellectual argument that Jesus is God and show all of the proof for this. Show all the ways that we're all operating out of faith, every single one of us. However, someone could say, okay, I can see intellectually why we would say that Jesus is God. It all makes sense. Yet, you or whoever you might be or whoever that person might be might still say, I just can't do it. I just can't say that he's my rescuer. I can't say that he is my God. And here's why. Because Christianity is not something you intellectually ascend to. Christianity is not something that you morally ascend to. Christianity is not something that your emotions intellect or your emotions find God through. Christianity is God come for you. Christianity is saying I'm desperate without God come to find me. And you know what that makes you realize? If all of this comes down to God being with us, then that means we are at God's mercy of him coming. Every one of our souls are on a faith journey, and the number one question we've got to figure out is what do we make of Jesus? More than any other religious claim, more than any other way of living, 
it all really ends up boiling down to what do you make of him? We're at his mercy. And okay, so all of it boils down to coming to faith or growing in faith. So if you want to come to faith in Christ or you want to grow in faith, here's what you need. You need faith. And how do you get it? It's a gift. Did you hear that? Faith is a gift. It's like a present that's put under a tree. You have to receive it. You don't earn it. You don't emotionally find it. And you don't intellectually ascend to faith. It is something that is received as a gift. And when you realize that, you realize, oh my gosh, well, then God has to give me this gift. What do I do to get it? There's nothing. You just have to receive it. It's a gift. You take the gift. He's giving it to you. Don't deny it. Don't try to earn it. Don't try to intellectually ascend to it. Just receive the gift. Growing in faith, you have to take the gift. The same way that our world is at God's mercy of him choosing to come into the world to rescue us, the same way we are at God's mercy of him choosing to reveal himself and offer us this gift. And so what do we do? We get on our knees and we pray and we say, God, have mercy on me. Give me this gift. And if you're praying that prayer, it's likely coming at you. Or maybe you have already received it and you just have not realized it yet. And if you're a Christian, if you come to receive this gift, here's what happens. Here's what you say. If this is true, you say, if this is true, then I've got to give myself over to him. I've got to obey every single word that he tells me. You know my biggest problem with my relationship with God? I don't want to do what he says to do all the time. He tells me to live a certain way. I see it in scripture, yet I don't want to do it. And you know what, you know what I do when that happens? See, what I end up doing, because God is with us, so here's what I do. Okay, I avoid God so that I am not now confronted with the way that I know he's going to tell me to live. So I say, oh, you know, I'm going to pray, but my prayers are like, they're, they're half-hearted at best, because I know if I'm really going to come into the presence of God, he's going to confront the way that I'm living, and I don't want that, because there's things I know he's going to tell me to do that I don't want to do, and there's things he's going to tell me to stop doing that I don't want to stop doing. And so what do I do? I avoid him. We all do the same thing. So he's come to be Emmanuel, God, with us, and yet he's coming to confront us with the way we're living, and so we want to push him out because we'd rather live the way we really want to live. And I think we've got to be honest with ourselves about this. And we've got to take a really good look at what's going on. So we look at our prayer life, and we look, look at our time in the Bible, and we say, man, okay, am I really allowing God complete access to my whole life? And if you're going to come into prayer and into the Bible like that, there's going to be a lot of times where you're actually not going to want to pray and you're not going to want to go to the Bible because you're allowing him, all of you. And there's probably been some Sunday mornings where you haven't showed up. And it wasn't actually because you were busy. You might have found a reason to be busy, but really what it was is you didn't want to hear it. You didn't want to be confronted by him. And the same things with our time alone with him. We don't want to be confronted, and so we push him out. We avoid God with us. All right, I got news for you. Listen, the version of you that you are one day meant to become, you don't get there without him. 
In fact, you don't really know the version of you that you're one day meant to become. I, I, this quote by Augustine, I love it. He says, God is closer to me than I am to myself. And here's what I think he means by that. I think he's saying that the version of myself that I'm one day meant to become, that's where Christ is. That's me following him closely. So he's actually closer to me than I am to myself. So the key to becoming who you're made to be is to go to him. You've got to let him be with you. Otherwise, because you don't really know who you're meant to become, but he knows that version of you you're meant to become very well. And he helps you get there, but you've got to go to him and not avoid him. You can modify your behavior very easily, but this God with you, that's the stuff that changes you from the inside out. Only him. So that means he's come, but he's come to confront sin. This is God with us. So you can try to avoid him all you want. Eventually you're going to have to deal with him though. God with us is either the most comforting news you've ever heard or the most terrifying news you've ever heard. And if it's not one or the other, you're not really listening to what it means for God to come and be with us. So every year I follow a Bible reading plan and it takes me through the Old Testament once Psalms, Proverbs, and the New Testament twice. And when I first started this plan, I got really uncomfortable. Now, you know, I just told you we got to go to the Old Testament. Well, here's the warning to that. I got really uncomfortable, especially when I was in the prophets. Because in the prophets, here's what happens. God sends people to speak on his behalf to his people. And what he's doing is he's confronting the sins of his people. And giving them warnings. If you don't stop doing what you're doing, discipline's going to come. Out of love, I'm going to do it, but discipline's going to come. Punishment's going to come. And it's very, very uncomfortable. And I really didn't know how to handle it. Because it was over and over and over again. Like, man, I just want to throw this down. I don't want to read this right now. I like the New Testament much better. But that misses something. There's a pattern. See, the promises are there. So God is saying, I promise. Well, let me tell you, here's the pattern. So the Old Testament goes like this. God rescues his people. Yay! After he's rescued them, he says, if you live the way I'm telling you to live, your life is going to be awesome, you're going to be blessed. If you don't live the way that I tell you to live, your life's going to be cursed. It's not going to be good. Okay? Thumbs up, God. We got it. First thing that humanity does, we turn our backs on God all through the Old Testament, over and over and over again, turn our backs on God, and things start crumbling. God is kind of still with them, but things are beginning to crumble, and they're still ignoring God because God has set rules in this world, and if you live a certain way, things are going to happen. We just learned that in our wisdom series. So things start crumbling, and they still keep doing it. And so God is, in a way, inching further and further away until it gets really bad. And then God gets involved. They still haven't cried out to God yet. And God says, okay, I'm coming back. I'm going to get involved. And God gets involved. Only he's getting involved to discipline them in such a way so that they might cry back out to him and turn back to him. So 
that happens. And then finally God's people say, God, please come and rescue us. And he says, I love you, I'm coming. And he comes and rescues them. And guess what? That happens over again and over and over and over and over and over again all throughout the Old Testament. It's just kind of happening. And what's going on? Well, when he's present, he's filling one of his promises, which is justice. He must right all wrongs. Now, here's my question. It's Christmas time. We're celebrating God coming into the world. So if he's more present now in the world than he was in the Old Testament, why in the world are we not running in terror? Why in the world have we not been destroyed? And I'll tell you why. Because he has come to fill a very specific jar, a very specific promise with his glory. All right, I'm just going to say it. God is holding back his wrath from our sin so he could throw it upon Christ on the cross in our place. As a very, very beautiful thing and a very, very misunderstood thing. Because here's what happens. Out of love and justice, God, Christ, goes to the cross, absorbs, I mean, puts on all of our sin. It actually says he who knew no sin became sin on the cross though he was without sin, so that all justice might be fulfilled on the cross and so that, therefore, we are clean, we are forgiven, everything's good. John three seventeen, I haven't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. The promise of God's justice is being fulfilled on the cross. It's as if the jar is there, Jesus jumps in, in all of his glory and all, all of the punishment that's coming to us is placed upon him on the cross. All right, so here's what that means. If God is with us, then that means this. We ought to either be terrified and go running, or we ought to be more comforted than we could have imagined. One or the other. God must either be a terror to us or a delight to us. This is why we can't have a mild reaction to Jesus. Let me just reason with you a bit. If he isn't, if he is just and hasn't accomplished forgiveness for you, you ought to be terrified and run as far away from him as you can. But if he came to satisfy justice on the cross in your place, then you ought to embrace him and worship him. But no mild reaction. something else i got to explain. Because if God is with us and he's here to make all things right, then why don't we feel like all things are right? Well, we live in a very, the Bible talks about it, a very particular period where his kingdom has come, but it's not yet fully revealed. This is part of the promise that is yet to happen, where he comes to make all things right. And so now the question is, okay, well, how is God with us now? Well, I will tell you, because he says, I'm going to be with you always to the end of the age. So here's how he's with us now. Through faith, the Holy Spirit is deposited within us, and God the Son and God the Spirit together, one God with the Father, the Spirit is living within you, and they are all attached to each other. So that means now the Holy Spirit, it actually means God is dwelling within you. No big deal. And God within you is longing, is crying out 
for the Son and the Father. And so we're connected to the Son through the Spirit dwelling within us, and that's how he is with us always to the end of the age. And now here's what that means. You have a God who's fighting for you. And he's for you and not against you. And he's proven it on the cross and he's satisfied. Every little bit of thing that you've done wrong, it's been dealt with. And now all he has is love for you and he's fighting for you and he's chasing you down when you run from him and when you're being stubborn and you're saying, I don't want to live the way that you're telling me to live. God, I'm going to try to avoid you. He's chasing you down out of love and he's pulling you back and he's getting in your face and he's saying, come on, come on, follow me, follow me. And he's showing you all the reasons why you ought to follow him. And he's comforting you. So we live in a time where things are not yet right. And so the job now of God, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is actually called the comforter. And so that doesn't mean when you become a Christian, your life is perfect and peachy. What it means now is you have a God who's fighting for you, but it also means you have a God who's comforting you in the midst of your problems, in the midst of your difficulties. He's after you, and he's for you, and he's comforting you. In Florida, our area of Florida in particular, we're chasing comfort. Like, we're driven for comfort. We want a comfortable house, a comfortable job, a nice, comfortable life, and a comfortable neighborhood. We just want to make sure everything's just comfortable. Could it be what we're really after is the Holy Spirit who is the comforter who comforts us in the midst of whatever we're going through. I think that that's what's going on. I think we have a longing for him to comfort us no matter what is happening in our life. And that's what's offered. So we gotta stop running him out and embrace God with us. The comfort that this world offers you, it will fail you. You will end up wanting more. It will fail you. Now, how do we get that? It's simple. It's by faith in Christ. By faith in Christ. By faith in Christ alone. So there it is. This is, doesn't that sound so exclusive? Faith in Christ alone. So that brings us to God with us. It, here, it's, it's not God with all, it's God with us. What is the us? Anyone who has faith, Jesus, God, Emmanuel, with us. Now, Christianity is offered to all, but it is not received by all. It claims to be the only way, which is incredibly in, in, exclusive. But it's offered to all, which is incredibly inclusive. So, Many times you'll hear people say, God's love is unconditional. Well, actually, there is one condition to God's love, and it is faith in Christ. And as soon as you receive this gift, that's offered to all, unconditional love pouring upon you, nonstop. Faith in Christ. He's accomplished it for you. So you say, well, that's not fair. Well, hold on. Think about this. Hold on. Let's, let's examine this. Let's look at the alternatives. If salvation 
is based off of merit. Is that fair? Let's say you need like this many units of goodness and you get there. Or you get there and then you do a couple of things and you're like someone cuts you off and you drop the F-bomb at them and then you just drop it. Oh man, I almost made it. Darn. Now I'm in the bad place. Jeez. Uh, you know, this, this ought to just blow the merit thing out of the water. Let me, let me tell you this. So, I mean, it's very clear to, to me, probably to you too, especially if you have kids, that we're born with our personalities. All of my kids, they were born very clearly, have very different personalities. So there's a study that was done on a personality profile. Uh, it's called the Enneagram, and there's nine personality types, and here's what they found. When they went into jails... There, of the nine personality types, there was one that was not represented in the jail, ever. They never found this personality type. It's called the reformer. So here's what that means. I mean, that doesn't sound fair then, because that person with this type of personality type was born with this, and so they're naturally just going to be a better person than the rest of us. Well, that's not fair. Or studies show if you have a loving, I mean, this is clear too, if you have loving parents that, it, that raise you well, you're more likely going to be a great member of society and a better person. Better person. And that doesn't seem fair either. And also, with God, the merit system doesn't work anyways. Because sin is a sin. And as soon as we have sinned and we want to get to heaven, the problem is we have sinned, so we're tainted. So as soon as we bring something that's tainted into heaven, it is no longer heaven anymore because it's not perfect anymore. And the Bible is also very clear that we have, an inher- we have an inherited sin problem that we've gotten from Adam, the first man who sinned, has brought it through to us. So we're all, I mean, we have a problem. The question isn't, is this fair? The question is, how has God been so gracious to have done this for us? Christianity won't make sense until you realize that. And let me tell you this. The thing that changes you is not a merit system. That produces behavior modification. You know what changes you from the inside out? Grace. What changes you from the inside out? Sacrificial love. What changes you from the inside out is a God who is perfect that you have sinned against, that you have made yourself an enemy to, and God come into the world and died on the cross in your place, rose from the grave to break through death, and has promised that one day he's going to come back and make all things right. You believe that truth, it's going to start changing you from the inside out. Who cares about behavior modification? I'm bored by that. I want to be changed by the inside out. And, and the other point behind this is God with us is that you've got to make a decision about what you make of him. If Jesus lived as perfect of a life as everybody seems to believe he's done, claim to be God, claim that he's going to rise from the dead, and then his disciples say, it happened, he rose from the dead. And they all died saying, it's true, nobody dies for a lie. The only logical thing to do is to drop to your knees and worship him. And we fight it. I fight it. Because I have a way that I want to live. So I got to remind myself, why should I be dropping to my knees? 
Like even back there, like I'm, I'm like praying, I'm like, God, I want to be in worship of you right now and I can't seem to get there. I don't know why. Why? Because I'm probably avoiding him. Because he's going to ask me to live in a way that I don't want to live. He's putting the fire to us. He's saying, make a decision. Is he the fulfillment of all these promises? Is he a fulfillment of God's love and justice? If he is not a fulfillment of both, this is what it means. It means he has shied away from justice so he can never give you the world that you long for. And if he has shied away from love, then he means he's got this great world, but he's not made a way for you. But if he is God with us, then he has come to fill both of those promises. He's come to be the fulfillment of them. And when you realize that Jesus is a fulfillment, you realize that all of the Old Testament points to him. And that means, listen to this, every single hero that you read about in the Old Testament, that's the jar that has yet to have been filled with the weightiness of Christ, with the glory of Christ, with the beauty of Christ, who has come to be with us to actually, because all of those heroes are pointing to a greater hero. So let me show you this. I'm going to just list off some of these heroes or so-called heroes in the Bible or failures in the Bible, whatever they are. And I'm going to show you how they point to Christ. Now, if you don't have a, like, a super strong Old Testament knowledge, some of this stuff you might not know, but listen, I wish somebody showed me this before I started reading the Old Testament. So listen very closely. I'm just going to read these off to you. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose perfect obedience is given to us, credited to us, so now we have forgiveness. Jesus is the true and better Abel. So, so Abel, Cain and Abel, Cain kills Abel, and then Cain is guilty for killing Abel. So we're kind of like Cain in this scenario, so here's how it goes. Jesus is the true and better Abel, who though innocently slain, has blood now that cries out, not for our condemnation because of what we did, but for our forgiveness. Jesus is the true and better Abraham, who answered the call of God to leave the comfortable and familiar of heaven and enter into the void to create a new people. Jesus came to create a new people. Jesus is the true and better Isaac. You know the story of Isaac. Isaac's going to be sacrificed by his father on the altar, and you're like, what is going on here? By the way, the New Testament deals with that, and here's what it says. Abraham was prepared to sacrifice Isaac because God's promise to him was that through your son all the nations are going to be blessed, and so he believed that God could even raise him from the dead. That is why Abraham was willing to do that, and so he goes, and then God stops him. But listen to this. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed. And then God said to Abraham, Now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you've loved for me. So now we can say to God, taking his son up to the mountain and sacrificing him, we can say, now we know that you love us because you did not withhold your only son whom you love from us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph. If you don't know the story of Joseph, his brothers sold him into slavery. He, he winds up sitting at the right hand of the king with all of this power, and then his brothers appear before him, and, and he basically accomplishes for them. He forgives them, accomplishes for them what needs to get accomplished. Listen to this. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed him and sold them into, sold them into slavery and also uses his new power to save them. Jesus does that with you. Jesus is the true and better Moses who stands in the gap between us and God. The whole point of Moses is God's people are sinning and God is 
frustrated and angry, and Moses stands in the gap, and he says, God, forgive them, and he does. Jesus is the true and better Moses who really gives us eternal forgiveness. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory against Goliath becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. And last one, Jesus is the true and better Jonah, who was thrown into the belly of death and spit out, so that we by faith can take hold of him, so that when he is spit out of death, we go with him. Everything's pointing to him. Don't miss it. And it's only true because he is God with us. Father, make sense of this for us. Let our souls cry out in worship of the beauty of what you've done for us. God, let us see the Old Testament as it, what it's meant to do is to point us to you and the cross and the resurrection the promise that one day all things are going to be made right. God, we praise you that we are not left alone, but you have come to be with us, and you have heard our cries, and we can celebrate that you have come at Christmas time. God, we love you for all this, and we pray this. In Jesus' name, amen.